We're continuing in our study of this New Testament letter, the book of James. Uh, hopefully, uh, it's been enriching for you as it has been for me to study this book and to teach through the letter uh, written to those in the early church by uh, James. And so as we come to understand again what God's doing, we're moving out of chapter 1 now into chapter 2, the series entitled Faith in Action, understanding how the faith that God gives us and has gifted us with is actually that which we receive and have an active uh, response of faith that he gives us to worship and to glorify him with. James chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 13. You can turn there in your Bibles or you have an insert with the text written as well. Listen as I read God's word. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is, not the rich, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Pray with me. Father, may we be reminded again of your grace reminded again that your word brings the truth of our sin, but the truth of your kindness and how it has overcome our sin. Give us that understanding again this very hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, her name was Heidi. She was an attractive young senior in high school on the cheerleading squad, very popular. And she actually was invited to come to our youth group when I was a youth pastor and to join us one particular week, beginning of her senior year. She joined us through a, a mutual friend, a girl that was going to our youth group. And throughout the year, she began to come alive to understanding her relationship with Christ. She became a believer. She accepted the Lord in her heart. And she began to really grow. She graduated and really didn't have particular plans except probably to stay around home and to maybe go to local community college and so she decided that she needed to get a job part-time. She began working in a local um, ice cream shop, um, kind of a diner, and she worked there while she went to school in her freshman year and she began to help us out as a college freshman with our youth ministry. Her heart was still wanting to follow and please the Lord. 
And sure enough, one day the Lord brought in a seven, over seven foot tall gentleman with a group of his buddies to order some food. She didn't know who he was, and she began to receive their order and just treat him like anybody else. Well, later that day, she ran into his friends somewhere else in the community, and they said, he'd really like to meet you again. And so they ended up meeting that evening and going out on a date, and the rest was history. They ended up, a year or two later, getting married after they dated for a while. And his name was Brad Doherty. In case you don't know who Brad Doherty was, he was a seven-time all-star NBA basketball player from the University of North Carolina in the NBA. And at that time, in the late 80s and 90s, he was playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers. She had no idea who he was until, of course, eventually told her. Well, Brad did not know the Lord. So Brad started coming to our church periodically with Heidi. And sure enough, he came to know Christ in his own life because of that relationship and hearing the gospel through our congregation. However, though Brad came to the Lord, and I had a chance to get to know Brad some, um, he didn't come that regularly. And after he and I went out and played a golf round or two and I got to know him a little bit more, I found out why. He said, you know, it's just really hard when I come into a church because I feel like people kind of still are coming up asking for an autograph or just wanting to get around him. And that was his experience. In fact, there were several even in our church who really just wanted to be near him and to treat him differently than they would have treated anybody else that came and visited our church or became part of our ministry. That was the only time I really saw that clearly happen. Someone being shown favoritism by a congregation or certain members of a congregation. It was just a few that did so. But I saw it, and it really wasn't very pretty. It was difficult to deal with, and it was hard for him, but it was also hard for those that did so, I believe. You know, favoritism can be something that is hard to see in our own life sometimes. Favoritism, as James describes it, is something that I think we even don't recognize when it's happening even in our own hearts and in our own lives. Uh, James, first of all, helps us see favoritism as we examine it, the first point I have there. How is favoritism looked at as James explains it? He really gives us much fuller of a picture of what it is as he describes what's happening there in the New Testament church around Jerusalem and Judea. His audience, of course, being the believers together, he challenges them with this very issue, not showing favoritism. Verse 1, he simply says to them, don't show favoritism, my brothers. Don't show favoritism. It was something that was a, a, a difficult thing for them because of their position in the community and in society. Many of them were not of means. Many of them, if not most of them, were not uh, economically um, advanced. They were very uh, impoverished in many ways. And so there was a temptation to show favoritism to those who might come into the church, Jew or Gentile, to become part of their community of faith to show some favoritism so that there may be some type of uh, receiving 
by those who would have more means or more influence or power in their community. And so there are a couple of arenas that James addresses here that he says they were showing favoritism. First was the arena of the church, verses 2 through 4. You know, majority of the believers were probably a lower income status, but some were not. Some had uh, more means. And, and so there was a struggle, though, in the church that they were showing favoritism. Someone would come in, as he says, wearing a gold ring or fine clothes, whereas if a poor man came in with obviously shabby clothes and not much means, how would you respond to that? And he says, if you show the special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes, but you show no special attention or, or actually don't show any attention to those that are in shabby clothes, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? Of course, that would be discrimination. You know, I began to think about that challenge that James gives to the church there around Jerusalem. And even us today, 2,000 years later, are we not susceptible to be tempted to be, um, have a heart of favoritism? Sure we are. Are we the kind of church that would make a person of great wealth feel comfortable when they came into, if they would come into our fellowship on a Sunday morning? I would hope we would. Or are we the kind of church that would welcome someone of very little means, impoverished, if they were to come worship with us here, gathered in this place? It's a question we need to ask. How do we respond to those who, are, who God is bringing into our community. How are we feeling and addressing and moving towards those that God is bringing regardless of their status or condition? You know, we are a mostly, probably college-educated, not everyone, but many in this congregation, college-educated, middle-upper-class, um, Caucasian for the most part, congregation who enjoy contemporary blended traditional music, casual dress, and coffee on Sunday morning. Right? Nothing wrong with that in itself, but the gospel's so much more than that. We're so much more than that. As those who embrace God's grace across every barrier, we're more than that. You're more than what you see sitting here. That, that shouldn't make us feel guilty about who we are, but it should give us a vision and a desire to want to be what God wants and calls us to be, which is more than just where we are. It's much more. You see, favoritism isn't just, and this is hard to hear maybe, it's not just an active rejection of someone who might come into our midst for whatever reasons that we reject or show or show favoritism to. But favoritism can also be expressed through indifference and apathy of incredible opportunity in our community that God has given us to go to. In a sense, we show favoritism by not pursuing anyone and everyone with the gospel of grace. And I think we're all guilty of that. And then so were those probably that James is addressing. Favoritism by indifference or omission, as it were. <clears throat> but not only was there a struggle in the church, there was a struggle in their 
community and the society that they lived in. Look at verses 6 and 7. But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are not the, are they the ones who are dragging you to court? Or not the, are, are, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? See, at this time, many of the Christians in the church, <clears throat> as it was being established, especially in Judea and Jerusalem, as I said, were mostly probably lower income or impoverished. They were many poor that were amongst the New Testament church being established. The church likely at this time did not have an equal representation of lower class, middle class, and upper class. It just wasn't equal across the board. That's, how not, that's not how the early church looked in this situation. <clears throat> and so the believers were tempted and at times gave in to that temptation to show favoritism to the rich and to those with greater means even in their community so they would avoid at times mistreatment by those very rich and those who had power and prestige among them. <clears throat> Three questions that James poses to them which explains this, this uh, favoritism even in the midst of mistreatment. He says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? You see, there were the rich in the community who were mistreating the poor, literally mistreating the poor in the legal system and in all types of ways. Oftentimes, as employers for the, for, the, for the laborers and the day laborers, they would mistreat them, not give them a fair wage, or at times not even pay them at all for their work. So they were absolutely being exploited by the rich. And they knew they were, and they continued to allow it to happen. And even at times, give favor or preference to the very ones who were exploiting them. He asked, James asked in the same verse, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? You see, the poor were literally being brought into court, into the legal system, and they were being maligned and mistreated by the upper-class rich who were abusing the justice system. Yet the very poor that were being maligned were still honoring these abusive rich and showing them favoritism. Why? Because they were wealthy and had status and power, and if they felt they went against them, then it would be even worse for them. And so they just didn't. James asked, Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of, to whom, of him to whom you belong? Here James just asks the very heart of the matter question. He goes right for the jugular with this question. By keeping silent regarding the abuses of those who were of greater means, the poor were being complicit in actually slandering the very name of the Lord that they said they worshipped. They were being complicit with the rich who were abusing and dishonoring the name of the Lord by how they went along with that exploitation and that maligning and mistreatment of their community. James has shown how favoritism was pervading the church and their community and society. And now he makes his case against favoritism by using the very law of God. Look at verses 8 through 11. Eight through 11. <clears throat> he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the very law's lawbreakers. You see, the royal law is, as James is describing it here, the summary of the law. And what's the summary of the law as Jesus taught? 
What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Summarizing all the law and the prophets. As Jesus did, that is the royal law. As he told the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. James focuses mainly on the latter part of the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. He shows that by showing favoritism and esteeming one person above another and doing so, whether in the community or in the church, wherever in your sphere of relationships, doing so for worldly purposes is failing to fulfill loving one neighbor as oneself. That is what he was clearly showing. And he was right, but furthermore, James reminds his Jewish audience that they can't pick and choose what parts of the law that they preferred and which ones they wanted to not follow. Which parts of the moral law are important and which are not? For example, some would view breaking the Sabbath as being something they would never do. But then, at the same time, they would take the Lord's name in vain and in not being so bad. You see, one aspect of the law was an abomination, whereas maybe another aspect of the law or a command would be something that they would not see as, well, I can overlook that. And so they were picking and choosing what parts of the law that they desired. And James reminds them to break one part of the law is to break any of the law. You can't just pick and choose. It's kind of like a load-bearing wall. In doing our basement and our, uh, our house before, the one we're now uh, for years when we first planted the church, we had a ranch and we had a basement. And in the basement, there was a wall that went down the very center of the basement. And I knew we needed to take that wall out so that we could have a large meeting room as the church was being established. And so it took an engineer and all kinds of effort with steel poles and triple laminate beams, 12 by 15 feet times three. It was just this incredible engineering feat. Why? So my house wouldn't fall down. That's why. I mean, you take out, you think, one little wall? It's not going to affect the whole house. No. The whole house would have fallen down had we not properly addressed the issue. You see, it affects everything. Just one stud, one little wall. The same is true with God's law. We have one little part of it, and well, I'm not really needing to deal with that, and it affects it all. You can't divide God's law up and expect to meet part of it and the rest to ignore. <clears throat> the law is complete. It is absolutely interconnected, every aspect of it. That's why we know we can't keep it. Because there's no one that can keep any aspect of the law perfectly. And there's no one that can keep some aspects of the law even all the time. We can't keep any of it all the time. Not even part of it. And Jesus exposed this duplicity even more when he's speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said to them, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, 
faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. What's Jesus saying? He's saying <clears throat> the law is our taskmaster, and the law is a relentless taskmaster. The law doesn't give up. You can't beat the law of God. Try it. Every time you try to go against the law of God and do things your way, or even if you try to submit to the law of God and follow it and keep it as perfectly as you believe you can, it's your taskmaster. Whether you're running from it and going against it, or whether you're trying to fulfill it and make it the very means of merit before God for your existence. Either way, you will fail. Realize that it is your taskmaster if you seek to try to go against it, and it is relentless. Have you found any part of the law of God that you've been able to keep perfectly? Any part? Even the littlest, maybe? And you've got that down, right? You haven't slipped up once on that little part. Maybe you feel, you feel pretty good this morning about one part of God's law that you're following, one part of the Christian life that you're doing well in, and you have a good hit track record even. Is it perfect? 100%? Probably not. If you're, if you're honest, you're not even perfect in that little area that you feel really good about. It's our taskmaster. We cannot meet it. <clears throat> Which is why James so clearly gives us a different understanding of what favoritism is all about. He gives us the perspective of God's relationship to us, which is not one of favoritism, for God is impartial, but it's actually one where it shows God gives us an impartial choice. He makes an impartial choice. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. James refers to here God's sovereign impartial choice. He says, <clears throat> has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? He's not saying God's only choosing the poor in the world. That's only the ones he wants. That's not what he's saying. What he's asking and challenging his readers is this. God is willing to even choose the poor, which you're not. He's not showing favoritism, which you are, so that he might show he is impartial. He does not look upon wealth or status or prestige or power. That's why he would choose the poor, the mistreated, the maligned, those who are marginalized, those who are less than in our world today. Has, can, would God not do that? Of course he would. Why? Because God is impartial when it comes to choosing his family members. God is impartial in relationship with his creator, creation. He is absolutely a God that does not show Favoritism, Romans 2, verse 11. For God does not show favoritism. Very clearly, Scripture tells us 
God is not a God that moves towards anyone based upon something in them. Anything in them, in us, in you, in me. He moves towards us because of his sovereign love. It's all about his love, his impartiality. You know, the gospel tells us that we are all condemned. We all stand guilty before God, absolutely guilty, utterly sinful before a holy, perfect God. And his law is perfect, and we utterly cannot keep it in any shape, form, or fashion in our own strength. We stand before this holy God. None of us bring anything to justify ourselves or to make us merit God's love or favor <clears throat> or that God would be influenced by you or me, that he would choose me or he would want me any more than anyone else alongside. God chooses us to be the objects of his affection not because of what he sees and then determines what he would do. He chooses us to be objects of his affection because it's his desire to choose what he chooses. He's impartial in the process. The gospel is the great equalizer, is it not? God's grace is the equalizer. It's an absolute equalizer for everyone that God has created. In that, there is no partiality based upon position or power or resources or wealth or increase or decrease. God's impartiality is the strongest evidence that we are saved by grace. Is it not? His impartiality is evidence that we're saved by 100% His grace through faith. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things are so that no one may boast before him. Knowing that God is impartial with us should absolutely motivate us, motivate our hearts to move towards other people in our lives with that same impartiality that God has poured into us by his very presence and have the freedom to not give in to the temptation of favoritism. You know, knowing that God is absolutely impartial with us should make his grace even more amazing to us. It should make his gospel even greater to us. And it should give us greater confidence in Christ's completed work on our behalf. Because God is impartial. He has done all that is needed for us. It's been done for us. And it's the truth of what that grace means for us that compels James to point us in the final verses to what the power of the gospel literally is. Look at 12 and 13. He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, outside of the life and obedience of Christ, we, you and me, we stand in judgment. Outside of Christ, we all stand in judgment before God's throne. We deserve any and all guilt, 
because of our own decisions and actions and choices. All of us do. Though all of us were born in sin, in Adam, in the first Adam, we were born that way, broken, failing. Outside of Christ, we also may have made choices. It's not just that we have this nature, but we also have made choices consciously to go against the law of God, to ignore and to rebel against what he has given us as truth. So we deserve all guilt, all punishment, and the sentence handed down from a just God. Eternal judgment is an absolute definite reality for everyone outside of Christ. It is an absolute reality. There is judgment. It's very clear. There is an eternal judgment. There is an eternal judgment for every single person outside of Christ. Hebrews 9.27, just as man is destined to die once, Hebrews says, and after that to face judgment. Scripture is very clear. <clears throat> In verse 13, James says that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. It's kind of James reminding us in a negative way what Jesus said with the positive in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember? Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's kind of the other side of the coin. Blessed are those who are merciful, they will be shown mercy from God directly. Favoritism is absolutely contrary to grace. Think about it. Why is that? Well, favoritism discriminates. Grace is indiscriminate. God is indiscriminate with his mercy and his kindness. But when favoritism exists, there's a filter and there's discrimination. We struggle with favoritism, with relationships, with those who are difficult to get along with. Raise your hand if you're pursuing people in your life that you absolutely don't want to have lunch with. I mean, you're just not doing it. If you are, you're a much more spiritual person right now in your life. Keep going. The power of the Spirit is in you, and that's where we're called. We don't pursue people like that. Why? Because we're partial. We're not impartial. We work off hurts and experiences and things in our life. We don't move towards people regardless. We run from people. We stay away from people. God does not do that with us. He does not prohibit himself from being in our presence ever. God doesn't run when we mess up and make mistakes. He doesn't turn us aside. He doesn't reject us and refuse us. Favoritism runs directly against the nature of the gospel, and particularly it runs against the incarnation of Jesus. It runs against the incarnation in exactly what it is in its very nature. Jesus himself is described in the scriptures as one who was anything but favorable to, to people. Right? Isaiah 53. He grew up 
before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's like he's talking about the elephant man. It's what it sounds like. Just, you can't even, you just turn away. That's who Isaiah seems like he's talking about. Here's the thing. Whenever you find favoritism, you will always find right next to it rejection. Why is that? Because anytime you favor something or someone, it always includes rejecting someone else. It has to. That's what favoritism does. When you move this direction, you're not going in that direction. So automatically, you're going to reject. That's what makes the incarnation, the humiliation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, everything about what Jesus has done so amazing. You see, God is impartial, yet Christ was rejected. God's impartial, and yet he knew it took the rejection of his only son so that what we would receive his favor. God, doesn't, God is impartial, but that doesn't mean we haven't received his favor. You see, we still receive God's favor even in his impartiality. There's a difference between favoritism and receiving God's favor. We receive his favor, but only at the expense of his son being rejected. That's what's so amazing about God's grace. Ultimate rejection is what? God's rejection and wrath. That's ultimate rejection. Ultimate rejection is God giving his final eternal judgment. That's ultimate rejection. Oh, that we would never be on that day in that place where we receive the ultimate rejection of God. His wrath and his condemnation for all eternity. It's because of all of God's wrath and judgment was completely poured out on Christ that there right now is not even one little drop of judgment left in the vial of divine justice for you or me. Not one. It's dry. There's nothing left for you or me who find ourselves in Christ. All that's left is what James says. Mercy triumphs over judgment every time it trumps judgment every time God's mercy trumps judgment judgment still happens but it's because God is just and it must happen but God's grace and mercy triumphs over that because of what Jesus has done for you and me